Hey folks, Joyce Vance here. Preet's out this week, so on today's episode of Cafe Insider, I'm joined by my friend Michael Dreben. Dreben served in the Solicitor General's office for over 30 years, including 24 years as the Deputy Solicitor General in charge of the federal government's criminal docket. He's one of only eight people in the history of the country to have argued over 100 cases before the Supreme Court. We talk about some of the most important decisions handed down by the justices this term, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson's impact during her first term on the court, and what's to come in the next term. Today, we're sharing an excerpt from the episode with listeners of Stay Tuned. To hear our full conversation and access all other exclusive content, try the Cafe Insider membership. For a limited time, we're offering a special deal. The annual membership is now 40% off for the first year. To sign up, head to cafe.com insider and use the special code JUSTICE. That's cafe.com insider, discount code JUSTICE. We look forward to having you as a part of the insider community. First off, I'm interested in starting with your top line assessment of the term that just ended and looking back at the decisions that were made. If you had to characterize this term, maybe for someone who'd been living on Mars and hadn't heard about it, what's your take? So thank you, Joyce, for that setup. Uh, The court term was indeed a very busy one, active, tumultuous, with many different conflicting themes running throughout the cases. This term followed on last term's seismic change in the law with the Dobbs decision, and it was attended by a lot of uh, activity, criticism, scrutiny of the court ranging from the leaked Dobbs draft to justices commenting in the press about the impact on the court's legitimacy as a lawmaking institution, a law-deciding institution, given the upheavals in the law. So we entered this term with expectations of another dramatic and potentially rapid shift to the right yet again. And coming out of the term, the message is a little bit more mixed. I would say that we saw a steady conservative push on many of the important issues that the court decided. And we'll get into those a little bit more and what they say about the way that the court breaks down in its vision of the law and America. But at the same time, we saw some counter themes that I would describe as more pauses in a potential journey to a more conservative jurisprudence than abrupt reversals. But these were nonetheless significant developments. In voting rights, the Supreme Court adhered to decades-old precedent that permitted challenges to racial imbalances in voting. In Indian law, it reaffirmed strong congressional power to provide protection for Native Americans and to promulgate laws that are binding on states and state courts. And in other areas as well, the court illustrated that it's prepared to push back on some of the most aggressive conservative initiatives. The hallmark case for that would be uh, Moore versus Harper, where the court rejected the independent state 
legislature doctrine that would have transferred an enormous amount of power over elections to legislatures in the states uninhibited and unrestrained by state Supreme Court rulings that applied state constitutional doctrine. In all of those areas, the court did not embrace the right radical efforts that would have shifted jurisprudence dramatically and quickly. Yet in all of those cases as well, the court left open the door to embracing more conservative views in the future. In the Indian case, for example, the court did not adjudicate one of the hot-button issues, namely whether laws that favor Native Americans in adoption violate the Equal Protection Clause by discriminating on the basis of race. In Moore versus Harper, the court left open the possibility of judicial policing of state Supreme Court rulings interpreting state constitutions as being too outlandish or extreme to survive constitutional review. And in the voting rights case, Justice Kavanaugh, a key vote for the majority upholding the current legal regime, suggested that he was open to the idea that there comes a point when race no longer justifies race-conscious measures that are ameliorative in goal. And that echoed Justice Kavanaugh's concurring opinion in one of the major right-wing victories this term, the SFA case versus Harvard and UNC, where the court overturned race-conscious admissions decisions in higher education. So if you look at the term as a whole, it did have some surprising results for progressive justices or progressive interests. But at the same time, each of those came with a little tag that says, maybe not so much in the future. You know, some people have suggested that those little tags are are poison pills. And there's a cynical view that the court, having already reversed Roe versus Wade and anticipating some of the cases that would come in the last week, that it didn't want to go too far. And so my question for you is, is that cynical view warranted or is this inherently what Supreme Court cases do? Do they always leave questions about the future open? You know, issues don't come up to the court and get fully decided. They tend to return to the court over time. That was certainly the trajectory with abortion during the years between Roe and Dobbs. So is what we are seeing in these cases, is this normal and to be expected Or is something else going on here? I would say, Joyce, that it's normal and to be expected. The Supreme Court is dedicated to the interpretation and application of law, and that distinguishes it from the political branches. And it's quite conscious of its separate judicially mandated role to not overstep in the making of policy. That said, the Supreme Court is composed of human beings who live in American society, and they bring with them deep beliefs and sensitivities to the important public trust that's placed on them. I wouldn't describe it as a cynical view to say that the court is sensitive to public opinion It is aware of challenges that were made to its legitimacy as a judicial body, and it has a sense of pace 
when it can move fast, when moving fast imposes costs, both on the rule of law and on itself as an institution. And we only have to look back to history to see that this is a very common theme, ranging from Marbury versus Madison, when Chief Justice Marshall took two years to decide that the court had the power of judicial review. Not a new power in that society, but it was cemented in the decision in Marbury in a way that had not been previously recognized by the Supreme Court. But he did it in an opinion that didn't actually reject the refusal to provide the commission to Marbury, the midnight judge. So he engineered a very clever way of changing the law or expanding the law without creating social backlash. And then, of course, when President Roosevelt was frustrated in New Deal legislation by a recalcitrant court and threatened court packing, the court changed and it began to uphold New Deal legislation. And more recently, after Brown versus Board of Education, the court took many years before it accepted Loving versus Virginia and established that interracial marriage was constitutionally protected. We know from justices' papers that they waited until they thought that they could make that ruling and achieve social acceptance rather than trigger backlash or upheaval. So to recognize that the justices are human and sensitive to the pace of change is nothing new, and I don't think that it's anything illegitimate either. There may have been some of that this term. We don't know. But the results compared to what they were expected to be indicate that the court may have decided that it needed to show allegiance to stare decisis after the highly controversial decision to overrule Roe versus Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood in the Dobbs decision. So I don't want to overread your comments, but I think it's really an interesting point, especially because you go back to Loving versus Virginia, which was such a long time coming, this ruling that said that black people and white people could marry each other and and that that was something that you had a constitutional right to do. And this notion that we've learned from justices papers after they've left the court, sometimes the best way that we learn about what has happened in the court in a particular era, that there was sensitivity to extra legal issues, to societal acceptance, to timing. And there is, I think, a legitimate view that you can't legislate morality, nor can you impose it in some cases by judicial fiat. But that is a little bit at odds with our notion that there are rights that inhere in all of us and that the time to enforce those rights is now. That said, carrying forward that instinct about loving to what we saw at the court last term, are you suggesting that the conservative wing of the court wants to go further, intends to go further, but they are pacing themselves? Or am I overreading you to look at it that way? I prefer to interpret it through their actions. And to me, the the trend line is strongly in a conservative direction. Uh, Linda Greenhouse wrote a piece comparing the state of jurisprudence in 2005 when Justice O'Connor left the court and the chief justice joined it to now. And it's a dramatic shift, and it's 
almost all in one direction, not unidirectional on certain areas when Justice Kennedy was on the court. Same-sex rights were recognized and affirmed, culminating in Obergefell, recognizing a constitutional right to same-sex marriage. But such liberal victories are relatively rare and prominent for that reason. The trend line is clear. And given the composition of the court, one can assume that the trend line will continue. I want to say one thing about the overall dynamic of the court's term as well, because the last day placed everything that came before it in a different light. None of the decisions was unexpected. The decision to overturn affirmative action, race-conscious admissions in universities was seen as a foregone conclusion when the court granted those cases and held oral argument. 303 Creative versus Alenis upheld free speech rights of a web designer to refuse to create marriage websites, wedding websites for same-sex couples. And the decision to overturn President Biden's student loan program by invoking the major questions doctrine, all of that was expected. But they were all six, three dramatic decisions that were very strong conservative reaffirmations and vindicated long-held conservative goals. And looking at them together, they reveal a vision that the justices see two Americas. The majority in these decisions sees an America in which individual freedom is vindicated by refusing to force a website designer to create wedding websites that she disagrees with. The overturning of the student loan decision deprives millions of people of debt relief that's critical to their societal well-being and deprives the administration of a strong role in overcoming congressional inertia to grant that. And the affirmative action decision reflects a view that race in America can be overcome as a divisive issue only by placing it off limits in societal decision-making. And the progressive dissenters in all of these cases viewed the court as transgressing rather than upholding core commitments of freedom of life in our society. Justice Sotomayor traced the history of the gay rights movement and the linked it to racial discrimination and other kinds of discrimination to reaffirm the importance of allowing people to freely live in society as part of their fundamental identities and constitutional rights. Similarly, she dissented in the affirmative action case to say that we've made progress in race relations in this country, but we cannot ignore the past or pretend that we've achieved everything that the society should in order to remedy the legacy of the past. And in the student loan decision, Justice Kagan wrote that the court's invocation of the major questions doctrine is actually a separation of powers problem 
because it hinders how Congress can allow the executive to respond to emergencies with legitimate policy initiatives that come from the political branches. So you see those two Americas reflected in the two wings of the court in those cases, which were among the most important of the term. And I think that they cast a shadow backwards on the earlier decisions that appeared more moderate and at least posed the question that I raised at the outset of, is this a court that's going to continue to move to the right and the decisions that were rejecting the more radical views from conservative lawyers really represent a pause rather than a reversal or a stopping point. So I think that's a helpful insight, this notion that these issues have been brewing. Was there something unusual afoot this term? Did the two Americas come to a head Or are these the sorts of decisions that you think happen in every term of the court where important rights are being compared, whether there's a question of what shape the leading vision takes in deciding how to reconcile rights that butt heads with each other? Was this a normal term or an unusual one? I think we are seeing an era of increasing fractiousness in the justices' uh, views of their roles and of the decisions that they're issuing. I'm going to read two lines from decisions that were issued. Thanks for listening. To hear the full episode, head to cafe.com slash insider and become a member for 40% off for the first year using the special discount code JUSTICE. That's cafe.com slash insider and the discount code is JUSTICE. To the many of you who've chosen to join the Insider community, thank you for supporting our work.